You can view all the things that you do as a freelancer as stocks. Your reputation is a stock. It can go from 100 to zero in a blink of an eye. You really got to guard them. And the best way to do that is to always keep your word. Hey, everybody. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jess. And we are two internet friends exploring the intersection of independent business and rails. Welcome to Indie Rails. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Indie Rails. Today, we're here with Pascal La Liberté. Pascal, welcome to the show. Hey, what's up, Pascal? Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So tell me where you're from and like where you grew up. I grew up in French Canada. I grew up in the Eastern Maritimes and Ontario as well. We moved around a lot when I was a kid. So that's all in Canada, but mostly Quebec and Ontario is where I grew up. In my teenage years, we moved to Ontario and that's where I kind of learned English and everything. But I'm French Canadian and now I'm in Ottawa, the nation's capital of Canada. And I've been here for a while since my studies and raising four kids in a suburb around here. And so how did you find programming? The first time I did was when I was doing some basic. I was like grade six or something like that. I mean, there's this old Mac in that room. I think it was grade six or maybe in grade seven. And I was just learning how those hyperbolic curves or whatever, like those quadratic curves, is that what it is? And I wanted to make a ball bounce on the screen, you know, and an inverse parabolic curve. Okay, yeah. So I, I like, and so I just designed this little, like it wasn't an algorithm or anything. It was like two, three curves, one after the other. I started then throughout high school, I was doing the website of the school and I was like, I had a lot of free time and that sort of started it all. So you took that knowledge you learned from high school and doing some web design, started college and you just kept going with that. And was that the plan was to be a computer science major or programmer or what did you want to do at that point? I had set out to go and draw and arts and I was good in computers. I was like, I'm going to go work for Pixar. But then I didn't really want to draw that much and I really wanted to do computer stuff. So I did this half business, half information systems, which is basically computer science, but mostly just the information systems part. Oh yeah, that's a really cool coupling. I loved it. I liked that stuff. Yeah. What did you want to do when you got out of school? What was the goal at that time? I had just been married. I was like, man, I could just continue doing this. And I got a job at the central web at the university. So I was like a student, but then I became like central web guy. Like I was really young and I just became part of the central team. And I just decided I'm going to continue doing this. What about Rails? When did that come into? Yeah. In 2004, I saw that blog video and I was like, oh man, I want to get into that stuff. But it, I took up Ruby basically. How did you decide you wanted to start freelancing? As a kid, did you have any entrepreneurial dreams or did it just develop at some point? When did you get on that track? I, I always want to invent. I just want to be able to fuel whatever I'm inventing. And so in high school, I was taking up some contract jobs to do like illustrations and stuff, websites. And so I think that relationship with the client and delivering something of value started very early on. So you were doing small side projects in high school. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
for the school, for small businesses in my small town, just whatever I could get. I like that discovery, being able to be paid to learn as well. You take up a project, you learn at the same time, all that stuff. But what set me off on freelancing is that after having worked in this big organization, the university that I was at, I wanted to change everything from the inside. And I couldn't really fit in into the culture of a lifer. And so I moved around inside the university, wanted to get closer to the value and to the metrics and where the value gets created and try to hook UX thinking into the business. And I decided that it was a dead end. I needed to leave. So what am I going to do? So I decided I'm going to leave. And so I took the first ticket out. I got a job at a startup doing the UX design and the web version of a rewrite of their app. And I led that part. And after nine months, after having delivered that rewrite and that secured a new run of funding for them, having had a success with the rewrite, I decided to leave with nothing planned after that. A family of four. I know, Jeremy, you've given the advice on the podcast before. Stick around and build something on the side for a while. Yeah. I'm the counterexample. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Don't do what I did, but I'll explain later a little bit about what I did to prepare. Mm. And it ended up being very fast preparing for those things. At the end of the day, I realized I've got a lot of skills that I can sell. I can resell a lot of what I know, a lot of what I can do. I can build apps. I'm just going to go. I invested in the people that I knew, had coffees. And I want to invest in them, give them a listening ear. And I wasn't there to sell anything. I invested in online forums. And one forum, I put a post. I helped a guy. I get this guy on LinkedIn probing me. I never do that. I never respond to LinkedIn. But this guy I did, he became my first client. It was an agency in LA called Clay. How long was that after you left the startup? A month. It was a start. And I decided I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to keep my word. I'm going to deliver value for these guys. And pretty soon I had other clients. And I realized that at the beginning of my freelancing, I decided, well, I'm going to have two businesses. One is going to be a local business and the other one is going to be a global business. My local business is going to be word of mouth and I'm going to take whatever I can. And the global one is I'm going to be sending out and specifying what I can offer and being very pointy. And I'm still in that transition, basically. I still had some of my local clients and more and more I'm getting my global ones. But it wasn't any closed-mindedness or anything like that. I was like, well, that's going to be the strategy. And it sort of became true. There's something inevitable about that and sort of worked out for me. That's an interesting way to look at the clients as local versus global. Why did you decide to split them up like that? I knew that I was going to have some strong opinions that I was going to throw on the web. And that was going to benefit like Hotwire when that came out, how to do things a specific way. But also about biopsychology, I, I published a blog for two years on biopsychology. And I was like, well, I'm going to just publish and I'm going to do scary things in public. And eventually that's going to pay off on the global side. But on the local side, it's about keeping my word. It's about honoring these clients. It's about adding value. But these are people that I met either through 
local co-working spaces or whatever. Like you can be helpful that way. So not being too picky about the work. Eventually I started getting some Rails work through that too. But essentially it's about understanding where you're coming from and the opportunities ahead and having a mindset of I'm going to be investing in this global area and through the websites that I make, through like this book that I wrote and put online that would inevitably bring prosperity. When you started that process, what was your goal? Were you trying to be a freelancer doing Rails projects, front-end projects? Were you even really thinking about the tool that you were using? Were you thinking more about like the value that you bring? In that process, I wanted to make sure that I capitalize on my skills, on what I'm good at, and let the career capital that I was accumulating unearth some new opportunities. And so I never really specialized very early, but I was not going to take anything. And so I picked projects that allowed me to learn the things that I wanted to learn for a fixed price. And the hourly rate is variable because I control that part. I can go as fast or as slow, but my incentives are I have incentive to learn and I incentive to be quick so I can learn quick. You know, (laughs) I can like find the places online where I can like accelerate that learning. And I think that's the general area, but I wanted to get close to Rails. I wanted to get closer to the good kinds of JavaScript that I want to do. I loved Vue, but I loved Stimulus even more. And so I was pulling on threads. You don't know where that's going to land, but you're pulling. So at the same time, I'm being very true to my word and honoring every one of my commitments, but then also playing and pulling on threads that I find interesting. I would say that's how the progression was made. Did you feel like you were having to go in a lot of different directions? Because you had a sharpened up page and then you had, was it a stimulus book? Is that what you had? Yeah, a book called modestjs.works. That's what it is. Modestjs, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I decided that was going to be okay. That the Sharpened Up page was a fire psychology resource, basically, but also I'm advertising some of my some of my availability for some specific service offerings there. But I was never really dependent on any of those to work. It was always small bets. So I know you guys took the small bets course. Yeah. yeah. So many good things in that course. But one of the ideas is that first survive, then play, put small bets out to the world and just continue doing that. So I would say in practice, I'm a small bets guy very much since the beginning. So a book doesn't sound like a small bet to me. Did it feel like a small bet for you? Yeah, it's felt like, well, I've got some time and this is the time that I have to put these in writing. You were able to take what you already knew and just kind of distill it rather than having to do a lot of research or figuring out a structure. You kind of knew where to go with it. So it was ready. Yeah, I had written an outline and I decided it's going to have these topics and I'm just going to do it. And it was kind of like a punk move, you know, had all these thoughts in my head and I was like, oh, it was just bursting out of me, but it was going to be a costly bet. I just decided to do it anyway. You came with a really great outline of things to discuss today. You say six things to avoid as a freelancer. Do you want to give us a quick overview and then we can 
kind of dive into that? I put this together because advice is good to give, but better advice is to just talk about what to avoid. Avoiding things is more robust than seeking to up your game in some ways. So it's via negativa advice. It's device that is postulated in the inverse. So things you should avoid is easier done than things you can improve. I'm going to go through them very quick, then we'll go deep, okay? One, avoid losing reputation. Two, avoid the scary by seeking the scary. Three, avoid a dependency mindset. Four, avoid selling when the person isn't in motion. Five, avoid letting your subconscious be the boss. And six, avoid wishful thinking. Cool. So start with number one. Okay. So avoid losing reputation. Well, this harkens back to Warren Buffett's, you can never have too much reputation. And it's basically saying, always keep your word. And if you do that, you will find you don't have a lot of competition. Sadly, a lot of people can't keep their word or they can't decide what they give their word to. They have difficulty with those two things. So if you're able to say no to things confidently because you can't commit and the things you do commit to, you deliver every single time, you're going to find yourself to be in a category of your own. Yeah, I remember when I was first starting out, one of the things that I focused on or I told myself is that I'm never not going to pick up the phone. I remember people complaining about like, I can't get in touch with my web developer. And it's typically because people are behind on a project. They don't have an answer or whatever. But I was like, I don't care how far behind I am or whatever. I'm going to pick up the phone, talk to the person and give them an update. Oh, man, that's a great point. To say when there's kind of an unknown about something you're working on, to say, well, I don't know how long this will take, but I'll give you an update next Friday. And you keep to that. And that makes it so good for clients. They love that. Yeah. And if you just keep the communication open, like even if you don't have like this miraculous update or delivery, you can at least give them progress. Exactly. One of the things that I find interesting about that is that you can view all the things that you do as a freelancer or in a career as things you accumulate, stocks that build up over time. How much people give you attention is a stock. You accumulate these things, but your reputation is a stock that is super fragile. It can go from 100 to zero in a blink of an eye. So there are some stocks like that as your in your career that you really have to see their fragility for what they are. You really got to guard them. And one of them is your reputation. And the best way to do that is to always keep your word. Makes a lot of sense. Did you ever see somebody lose a reputation and be like, that's something I want to avoid? I've got to say that coming from employment land, there's a lot of reputation annihilation events that happen that because a game is being played in an organization, it's sort of okay to lose face and lose reputation, especially if you're higher up. Everything is so imperfect. 
that a lot of people can recover. But when you're in a freelancing thing, you really can't afford, you know what I mean? You got to be tight. But it's just a good way to live. Knowing that at the end of the day, I was honoring my word. I was honorable and uh, may have battle scars, but at least I did the things that I said I would. I'm thinking about this a lot with putting on a conference right now. We had this great conversation with a longtime conference organizer who said, when you are doing a conference for the very first time, people are trusting not a brand. They are trusting you as a person, as the organizer. So sponsors in particular, who are they trusting? They're not looking at a big brand. They don't know this conference from anything. You have to be the one to make the commitments to them. They need to see you and they're trusting in you as a person to deliver. And that just hit me so hard. This is kind of after we'd already been started, but realizing that basically everyone that is involved in a conference from vendors to attendees, to sponsors, to speakers, everybody's having to trust you. And if they don't know you, it's not a brand that they've seen. They haven't seen this conference before. They don't just say, oh, RailsConf's been around for a really long time. Of course, it's going to be great. It's really about the connection to the person. Will this person deliver? Do I believe that they will deliver? And it's all, yeah, being able to keep all the promises I'm having to make to all these people. And that is really scary. It's like really hard. For me, it's harder even than client services because there's so many people to make promises to. So it's kind of like a next level, at least for me right now, it feels like kind of next level. But it also reminds me of what it felt like at the beginning for me of the kind of things that you are committing yourself to with a new client. When you first start freelancing, it's kind of the first time you ever have relationships like that with other people where you're saying, this is what you need. I'm delivering this. Here's when it'll happen. You're kind of setting all of these things and building a structure of delivery and trust. And you're kind of just making it up because you have never done it before. It's not like somebody's there telling you how to do all of that, like maybe the way a boss would. So you're having to come up with that on your own and then figure out, can I actually meet all the things that I said I would do? And that can definitely feel very stressful or scary, but super important. You bet. When people are trusting you instead of a brand, that is extra pressure, but it's also extra reward. At the end, yeah. we're also always trying to break out as freelancers and to have our name be on something. When you do something scary like that, then you get the reward on your name. Speaking of something scary, number two, avoid the scary by seeking the scary. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I think I decided that I was going to be prioritizing meeting my commitments so much, but then I realized there's something more important than meeting my commitments. And that one is to basically ensure the security of my family, of me and everything. And so avoiding the scary or protecting from the scary is my main responsibility. As a father, as a husband, I've got a responsibility there. But the best way that I found to avoid the scary, besides doing the minimum, is to seek what is scaring me. So this is an insight that comes from Stephen Pressfield and his War of Art book. Seeking the scary means having a lens on your subconscious where you can see when you are resisting or you're getting internal pushback or you're getting thoughts of sabotage. Oh, this will never work. You have that talk in your mind. 
or when things become super important, you will have this fight or flight or freeze amygdala response. Then when you notice it, you say, I have to do it. This is the way that I have to go through. I have to push through this thing that I'm doing right now because I have this reaction inside of me of being scared. Meaning you notice that you're scared and you see it as the way you have to push through. And so when I decided I was going to write this book, I was so scared. For example, I wanted to procrastinate and I wanted to, all of a sudden, I want to make everything in my house super clean. You realize that when you have those reactions, you know you're on the right path is basically what I'm saying. But it has a side effect of pushing through your internal walls. All of a sudden, you push a wall and you'll have a bigger room. You realize that you have more within yourself than you realize. And so you expand your own capacity. You expand your capacity. And so that is a rule of thumb for me to seek and to dance with fear and to say, I'm so happy that you showed up fear because you're showing me the way. And so it's kind of a North Star for me, especially as a freelancer, as a solo. It's just like, great. Is this the right way to look at that? So it's kind of like a mind hack where you take something that you normally would run away from and it would scare you or push you back, but you flip it and you say, this means that it's something that I should pursue. For sure. You can see it in the very specific or you can see it in the very big. When I started as a freelancer, a friend of mine said, you're stepping very close to a cliff of having no revenue, but you got to realize that's a fake cliff. And it's one of those cliffs that because it's only in your mind, that if you run toward it, it'll go further and further away as you get close to it. That said, you have to discern. There's some things that are really scary that you should avoid. Don't be reckless. But there's some things that are in the other category, which look a lot more like they're sacred. Things that are sacred have this dual sort of response throughout history, throughout like human history. Things that are sacred make you have this feeling of awe and of fright at the same time. It encourages you to expand, but also it makes you very vulnerable. And so when you have those moments, when something in front of you is sacred to you, you will have those feelings of self-sabotage. You realize that's the way you have to push through and you discern of all of my things, I have to do, I have to go do this thing. I'll give you examples. I have to have this tough conversation with the client and I have to raise my prices. Sabotage comes in my mind. Ah, I have to do it. I have choices of how to propose this project to a new client. One of them is making me scary. That should be on the list of the options that I propose, et cetera, et cetera. And a life of solo has an abundance of these situations. Yeah. And so we're kind of lucky that way if we can use that mind hack. Number three, avoid a dependency mindset. Give us an example there. What does that mean? Yeah, an example would be a very trivial one is you see a lot of people in open source. For some reason, they will kind of blame the maintainer of the open source package for not updating you for a while and stuff like that. That's a trivial example. But right there, I see a dependency mindset. More importantly, it is a pattern that happens everywhere in all of your relationships. 
the relationship that you have with that open source package is one, but the relationship you have with your brother, or you have the relationship you have with your father, the relationship you have with a piece of technology, the relationship you have with a client could be in one of three ways. It can be independency. You can have an independence mindset. You can have a third one, which is called interdependence. It's more complicated. I'll come back to that in a second. But essentially, these three sort of stages are what Stephen Covey, the seven habits guy, put into a book called the Principle-Centered Leadership book. He calls it the maturity continuum. Dependence is the least mature. Independence is on the way to maturity, but it's not the most mature. And the third one, interdependence, is the most mature. I'll run them through with each of them having a single word that describes your mental lens that you sort of see everything through. In dependency mindset, you have the word, the operative word in your mind, the lens that colors everything that you do is them. They are not giving me what I want. They are to blame. So you kind of feign accountability by blaming others. And when you see that, you kind of like including somebody else into your realm and you make it their fault. That is a clear just immaturity dependency mindset. It is obviously immature. To go forward from that, you develop a new word in your mind and it is, I can do this. I'll figure it out. I am good at what I do. But then it could be self-centered. And that's why it's not the most mature. The third one is you have vanquished your ability to say, I can do this, but you don't dwell on it. You go further and the operative word in your mind is us. Let's create an environment for everybody to go from dependency to independence to giving of oneself or to, of investing in oneself, which is the third stage where you describe a moment where I've got my stuff together, but I'm investing in others and I'm investing of myself in this thing. So with a client, you can right away say, I really want you to have a success with this project. I'm not going to give you options that are not win-win. I'm going to invest myself in your success or we're not going to be in a relationship together. Kind of reminds me of how it seems like the story of many people leaving full-time employment moving into freelancing or consulting, it's often a, I'm tired of them. I want it to be me. So many of the times, like what drives people into it is like, I hate my boss or I hate the way I'm being managed or I hate that I have to ask for this or that. I have to beg for these things or I can't get what I want. And it's always they. And so the choice then is to step away to like, I'm going to do this by myself. I will be my own boss. I will have no other. It will be me. So kind of like, it feels like that progression that the step that you enter the indie world, a lot of times you've come from they to me. <clears throat> and then there's like this period of time where freelancing or consulting kind of beats you up <laughs> and then maybe gets you back to a they in a way that you start to, I've at least noticed this with myself, a way of getting you back to a place of embracing the us or the we with a client or with a team or whatever it is. Because there's a gratitude that you feel. You finally realize like you really aren't ever going to just be you by yourself. You do need to serve people. You do need to have a system 
that has flows of value going in multiple directions, you need to be tapped into that. You can't just be self-sustaining. And so then you can come with gratitude back to the us. Maybe sometimes even with the same people that you used to be employed by. I think that can really happen. But it's you, that your mindset that changed. I think stepping through those stages to get to we, especially like getting from me to we in a client services, you really need to try to do that. Not quickly, but that's a progression that needs to happen to be successful and to do well. Yeah. And I mean, you're already successful if you're in an us mindset because you already realize your worth and you give value to others and you create an environment for others to grow in. Everything else is incidental, how much revenue you're making, all these other things. But if you've got the right mindset, I mean, it's attractive to others, first of all, but it's also very adult, very good for others, you know, around you. So avoid the dependency mindset is basically realize when you have it and root it out. Yeah, because otherwise you'll be constantly seeking independence and never attaining it. So number four is avoid selling when the person isn't in motion. Yeah, when you realize that you're distinct from your client and that you want to add value, then you have the proper posture to have empathy for what they're going through. And this is pretty simple. If you realize that they're not in motion, they're not in a momentum to buy, it's not the right time. You just sort of should avoid being in a selling mode but you have to be in an attentive mode and to listen. But it is a rule of thumb when you notice it's not the right time, it's not the right time. The right time will come, but you got to realize when that's going to be happening. And the one framework that I like to talk about that is pretty rich in understanding having empathy for buyers, this whole buyer psychology stuff is jobs to be done. So in short, you've got a lot of people talking about it saying people don't purchase a thing, they hire a thing for a job. That also happens to be in client services when they hire you for a job. A few examples would be they want to expand their business. They're hiring you because they want to be able to address other pressing needs. So they're delegating. But there's always an aspiration and there's always a pain. There's a pain that starts them getting off their chair and saying, I got to fix this. But it fits within a broader aspiration. I'd like to get there. Both things have to happen. People don't get movement unless there's a struggle. They might have an aspiration, but they won't move on it until something is says in their mind, enough is enough with the old. Time for the new, but it's time to not be with the old anymore. So you got to be cognizant that there is no momentum unless there's a struggle. But there's a bigger aspiration that they're pining for and that you can help them deliver on that. And when that movement occurs, then you can have conversations of value. They understand the value. They understand where they want to go. They understand where they don't want to be anymore. Now they're in movement. One of the tools and jobs to be done is called the four forces of progress. Very simply, there's two forces at the top, like four quadrants, two at the top, two at the bottom. The two at the top bring toward purchase or change and the two at the bottom go in the reverse direction toward non-consumption toward I'm not buying the two at the top are the struggle 
So it's a force, right? The bigger the struggle, the bigger the movement away from the old. And then there's another one that's like called the attraction. The thing that's sort of the magnet that pulls you in towards purchase. Oh, it's going to allow me to do this. This guy is going to allow me to get to this point in my business. So there's attractive. But then it's counteracted by two very real forces. One of is the anxiety, all these hesitations, these anxieties about, oh, am I going to be able to, and then these fueling all these things that it may not work out. That's one of the bottom ones. And the final bottom one is the I'll just statements that are in the mind of the person. It's like gravity well, a huge gravity well pulling them back toward status quo, not doing anything. But this gravity well is strong, but if the struggle is big enough, then there's going to be some forward momentum. There's going to be a rocket ship pulling them so they can change orbit. So you got to have a strong struggle, more traction than anxiety, and that all these I'll just statements in their mind they have to be in the past. They don't satisfy anymore. I can't do this anymore. I can't do this by myself anymore. And so they're kind of like removing all those I'll just from their mind. Now it's time for me to move. That's movement. That's motion. And if the top two are not bigger than the bottom two, in the person you're talking to, they're not ready. But they might be pretty soon. Just got to stick around. You got to be listening. Got to be mapping those out in your mind. Where are they right now? They're telling me about their aspiration, but they're not going to do anything about that. They're talking to me about, oh, your price is too high. Eh, That's an anxiety, but that's not a very good anxiety. That is a minor anxiety. Remove all the other anxieties and wait for the struggle and you're going to be good. You can charge a good price. So that's kind of the framework. It allows you to be very confident. This is not the right time. I'm not going to have that conversation with you. Tell me more, but I don't have any options to provide to you. All this movement is happening internally. And so what you're pulling out is the discussion. That's kind of what I'm getting. I was trying to think, how do you see when a client's in movement? And if I'm hearing you right, it's you're asking them the questions and then kind of mapping to those quadrants, those four areas. And then based on that, it's triggering you to say, okay, they're in movement or... No, they're not in motion right now. Tell me about your situation. Yeah. We had like three months in a row where we had some churn. And it's like, got to get to the bottom of this. So you got this repetition. So the struggle could be either a gigantic event or repetition. Something is accumulating and it's continuing to be a trend. They got to stop it. Could be any of those things. Oh, tell me, what if we're like four months after we ship this thing? what will you be able to say you'll have done? Like, what will you be celebrating after four months? That'll tell you about their aspiration. I'll be able to create a better environment for the rest of the team because right now they're all over the place and now we'll have a better system. I'm saying this to you, Jeremy, because we worked on some ideas for you, but that's basically a good question. Tell me about the future. When in the future things have turned out great, what is it that we're celebrating? So displacing in the future. So those are questions you can suss out, but... What if we don't do anything about that for three months? What's going to happen? Those are good questions to have. Yeah. A lot of that requires getting really deep with a potential client. Do you find that most clients or most prospects are willing to have those conversations so you can actually get down to those things? 
is that a lot of it's like very deep motivations and the kind of thing that I would expect that people might not be willing to have in an initial chat about what they're looking for, about the thing they came to you about, which is maybe not the thing they need or may not be ready for, you know what I'm saying? It's about escaping commodity as a freelancer. So it's a risk that you're taking to say, well, I'm going to say no to this client until I can find the value. But if you can't, you might have to do a few months in a sort of commodity, sort of exchanging your time for effort. But for new clients where you feel the scary coming and then you have that conversation, you know what I mean? You can risk it. You can discern, no, this is going to be good. I'm going to have that conversation with this client. That may be a part of the equation, Jeremy, if they're not even willing to go that deep. Yeah. Then maybe they're in that quadrant that says they're not ready to make that decision yet. Yeah. So that's number four. Ready for number five? Yeah. Let's do it. This is a heavy one. Avoid letting your subconscious be the boss. So this has to do with ego. Ego protects itself. Ego comes up when you have a lot of certainty. And essentially being able to get rid of ego is a huge ability that is rare. Not a lot of people can do it. They said that if you look at managers, 85% of them will not have been able to have done that to part with their ego. And you can tell because they're in a rah-rah, more-more, my system, my process. And it's a lot about them and their ability. But then if you're able to part with your ego, then you have access to these other stages of leadership that creates an environment for others, that has more listening skills, all these attractive things about a leader you can create in yourself. So essentially, you have to be able to be very good at spotting your subconscious when it is acting up. You have to be good at seeing the lenses that are just at the periphery of your brain that are coloring everything that you're seeing. Everything now is in a darker shade for some reason. And you can't tell that you have this lens until you peer into your mind and see, oh, I've got this lens. I've got this certainty. I've got this tape playing in my mind. And what are those? Those are statements that you can catch and rewrite. So this step about avoiding letting your subconscious be the boss is about catching thoughts and rewriting them in real time. So very short formula. When you feel that you're in a reactionary moment, you feel flustered, upset, whatever, you take a pause. You ask yourself, what am I so certain about? What am I so sure about? Then you'll have words like surely, either or. You'll have words like that. Surely, it's going to be either we do it this way or it's going to go bad. So you realize that you have that sentence playing out in your mind. You identify it and then you rewrite it. The best way to rewrite it So the short formula, reactionary moment, you ask yourself, what is it I'm so sure about? You spot one. The very easiest thing you can say to yourself is maybe. So you spot like a surely this is going to go bad if, maybe. And that takes the edge off. But then you could say, well, maybe we'll find another way. Or maybe that statement that you have, that subconscious, was actually right, was actually true. It is truth. So then you can say, well, oh, okay, well, I'm going to act on that. But is that ability to take the edge off in the moment of your being upset, being able to 
part ways with your ego, look at it as a third person, peer into it, look at the lens, look at that statement that you have, rewrite it, and then move forward so that you can be constructive for the thing that's in front of you. So that is good for reputation protection with a client. You know what I mean? Like in the moment, being able to be like that takes practice, but it is definitely something of a skill to develop. So it made me think of managing software applications. All the time I get people say, this software isn't working right. Or they're saying, I'm doing this and this isn't happening. Nine times out of 10, it's a user error. But the one time there's not a user error, if I'm being too cocky about it, then it's going to come back to bite me if I tell the customer, no, you're just doing it wrong, do this. But if I say, well, maybe I should check it out and try to implement it myself and see what happens. And I've done that a couple of times where I'm just like so sure that it's a user error. And then sure enough, that time it wasn't, it was a bug. Exactly. Being able to catch that certainty and say, oh, we'll see. We'll see. Exactly. So that is a meta skill that's good for everything in life, but it is definitely going to save your butt in a number of very important occasions. Yeah. I had a client meeting a couple months ago where the client was proposing a solution, what he felt like it was a UX problem, but he just kind of went straight to solution. And it was the kind of thing where I don't know if you've ever had product managers or project managers propose a solution for you <laughs> that they're convinced is the thing. And in the past, my blood pressure would go up, you know, and you're like trying to convince them, but you just can't. You're thinking, they're going to force me to do this thing, to implement this thing. It's going to be terrible for the product. And then my name's going to be on it. So your blood pressure is just rising. And those can be some of the most difficult conversations or places where you can make poor decisions, you know, really hurt a relationship, really hurt your reputation right in that moment because all of a sudden, all that fear or all that anxiety is coming up. And for me, about this point, it's like one of those places where that happens, where trying to interrogate in the moment, why am I feeling like I'm... Some people talk about leaving your window of tolerance. You have like this window of tolerance. Once you get outside of that in discussions with people, in a conversation, something triggers you, like figuring out quickly, why is this triggering me? And then getting back into a place of tolerance so that you can stay in that moment, stay in that discussion, stay in the tension of it without giving up or the fight, flight, or freeze thing. I don't know if that totally relates, but that's kind of how I see that in this case. And so much of that has to do with being able to know yourself really well, mm -hmm. analyze yourself, and then be able to do it sometimes in the moment so you don't like lose it in those discussions where you could say or do something that would really jeopardize the project or the team, hurt the relationship, all those kind of things. Yeah. And in your example, if you really let your subconscious be the boss, then can you really say that you're given that 100% of your effort? Yeah, totally. One way that I look at it is that I always have to be inventing a second Pascal that looks over the first Pascal. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. And it's just kind of like a muscle that's uncomfortable to create. It's kind of like stretching a person outside of you. But with practice, it comes easy. But it, it basically is summoning a watcher over the subconscious. Yeah, that makes sense. 
The last one is avoid wishful thinking. This is going to be a controversial one. I'm going to be rapping against to-do culture on this. To-do culture is this idea that I'm going to write it down, this to-do, and I'm going to do it. We got to realize that once you're writing a to-do, you're really writing a wish. You're not making it happen. You're making a wish. Or worse, you're making a commitment you can't keep. But let's just say that it's a wish. So the antidote to that is you find what is inevitable. So a bit like the question that I asked earlier that you would ask a client, what if we're four months after we're done? What are you celebrating? You can ask that question to yourself. I'll give you guys a very specific example. I had decided I'm going to have to leave pretty soon this university. I had developed this idea, this ability to do this trick, but I applied it then. I'm like, before I leave. And so what you do is you put yourself in a future place and then you imagine you're there and then you look back at what you did to get there, at the thing you're celebrating having done. And so instead of a to-do list, you write a have-done list of what you will have done. And so you ask yourself, before this place in the future, I'll be able to say that I'll leave this university or leave this job. Before that time and place, I don't know when it is going to be, I'll have colon. And then you start writing not imperative verbs like accomplish. You write the future perfect tense, the past participle of that verb. I'll have accomplished, advanced on, developed, increased, decreased, and then you finish the sentence. That ability to write in past participles and the future perfect tense has created changes in history, but it can change any situation. So before the end of this meeting, I'll have, they will have, they'll have been listened to. And listening to somebody is kind of like a weird to-do to write, but if you write it in the future perfect tense, they'll have been listened to. I'll have given of my listening. It is the most important thing you can do in a meeting, but it's not weird to do to write. <laughs> right? Yeah. But for me, before I leave this place, before I leave this job, I'll have become at the top of my game with my skills. I'll have made sure that everybody around me knows that I love them. I can't remember my list, but I remember it felt like huge things for me to do. These big, important things that need to happen. But having put them on the list like that, then you can realize of all those things, what has to be the most true by that time. And then you put that one on top. So you change the order and then you rewrite some statements so that they're the most true statement is at the top. I'll have made sure that everybody around me is okay with me making this jump. And that sounds scary and unattainable. Well, you tell you what, it happened within months that all those things sort of fell into place because that changed my brain and made some new priorities automatically, made it inevitable, and it just happened. It's kind of magical, but it really works. And so the flip to wishful thinking is that ability to see in the future see what you really care about and dotting the lines back to you and to your own decisions. You can like say, well, before the end of the day or before the end of that month and you create the real deadlines, like before I have that presentation, I'll give, you know, I'll have 
before this conference you're going to be making or by the end of the conference you guys are putting together. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about. <laughs> exactly, right? So those moments that are super important or three months after the conference, people that will come will have, and then you write, made new friends and all those things that are most important. So you realize what your intention is. You realize what your profound hopes are. You get honest with yourself. And then once you do, things just sort of happen. They're not wishes anymore. They become inevitabilities. And it's like one of the biggest mind hacks that I've realized. Pascal, thanks so much for coming on today. This has been a really great conversation. What would you like our audience to be able to come away with from this episode? I've got something for you guys. If you're in a motion that you'd like to get better at biopsychology, understanding your clients, being able to map out their internal thoughts, are they in a moment of they want to move away from something and towards something else? Or even if you're building products, you want to get into the mind of people that buy products and you're like a bit like not sure how am I even like the type of person that pays 150 bucks for UI kit? How do I make this decision? If you want to elucidate all those things, I've got a package for you. You can go to sharpen.page slash 10 slash T-E-N. And for 10 weeks, I'm going to send you an article from the backlog of my articles. And I'm going to string together a list of articles for you to be learning each week a little bit about biopsychology. You can pair that with a book. If you're meaning to delve into jobs to be done, there's some good books out there like Competing with Luck or Demand Side Sales. You can pair that book with those articles and they're going to go hand in hand. Very cool. Where else can people find you online or how else can people follow you and keep up with what you're doing? Yeah, you guys can just type in pascal.works and that's going to redirect to my personal site. And there's going to be some links there to Mastodon where I'm mostly there these days and anywhere else that I've got any of the other projects with bullet train and stuff that I've got going. Awesome. Sounds great. Well, I've been busy with the Blue Ridge Ruby Conference. It's coming up June 8th and 9th in Asheville, North Carolina. This month of recording is April and we are busy with promotion. We're just reaching out to more people, connecting to people that want to come and attend. The end is in sight. We have a big walkthrough of our venue on Thursday. So we'll get in there and get a lot of the details, logistics worked out for the venue on Thursday. So that's coming up. Yeah, sounds exciting. And speaking of promotion, we're approaching 10 episodes of Indie Rails. And so we're really proud to have gotten there. And we've gotten a little bit of feedback from the community. We're thankful for that. But really, that was mostly unsolicited, but I'm soliciting some feedback. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. What do you like about the show? What do you want to hear more of? What can we do to make it better? And also just help us spread the word a little bit. I was talking with a good friend the other day and I mentioned the podcast and he was like, what podcast? And I was like, what? You didn't know we started a podcast and he didn't know. So it's just like everybody that creates a product or anything. You think everybody just knows about it, but it's getting the word out. Promotion, like you're talking about, Jeremy, is it's a work in progress. So if you guys could help us promote it, we'd really appreciate that too. All right, everybody, that's the show. Thanks, Pascal. We appreciate it. Yeah, I really appreciate you being on. Yeah, right on. <laughs>